It's time for the Sick, Tired, and Transcendent Podcast. But I'm tired of being tired of being tired. With Jasmine and Crystal. All right. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Sick, Tired, Transcendent. I'm Jasmine, and I'm joined with my co-host, Crystal. And today, we're going to be talking about internalized racial oppression. <laughs> If you're wondering, like, how does that show up? I think one of the common ways it shows up right now is there's been a lot of movement with COVID-19 in the job market, whether there have been cuts or other different ways that people have been engaging in applying for jobs. But I think internalized racial oppression shows up in the way that we interview, the way that we apply for jobs, and the opportunities that we seek to find. So we're super excited to engage. We're on a late night tip. It's currently 11.15 p.m. (laughs) on a Monday. And we are here bringing you content. Yeah. So, hey, hey, hey. (laughs) So, oppression apparently comes in four forms. So, the four eyes of oppression. They all work together. So, they're not one thing. So, when we talk about internalized racial oppression, it's going to work with all of these other types. One type is ideological, which is like the idea that one group is better, so more intelligent, harder working, more deserving than another group. There's institutional, which is centered around hiring practices, public policies, prison systems, schooling and education, things like that. There's interpersonal, which is thinking and acting on the belief that one group is better than another. But in interpersonal, it also gives permission to the dominant group to mistreat and disrespect another group. And then that brings us to our topic for today, which is internalized racial oppression that you yourself are feeling within yourself, basically. Yeah. And this one is going to be a tough topic to talk about because when we think about racism, we think externally immediately, like what's happening to us? What are white people doing to me? What Mm -hmm. are other non-black POC people doing to me in the form of anti-blackness? But today we really kind of want to zoom in on internalized racism. So basically we're in a oppressed group uses the same methods of the oppressing group against itself. So it happens when one group thinks they are not as valuable or as valued as another group. And so they want to be more like the higher value group. And this comes from research by sociologist Karen D. Pike. She coined the actual terms. And when I, I want to specify that when we talk about value, I'm talking about the value that society places on different groups of people, especially in this country. A lot of times when we talk about racism, if you actually know the definition of racism, it involves power. Mm -hmm. So like when people are like, oh, it's reverse racism and stuff like that. If the group that is prejudiced or discriminating against another group is not the privileged group, then it's not considered racism. It seems kind of confusing because internalized racism be like, okay, I'm black. So how am I racist against myself? When that's not really the thing is that you're playing into the system of racism that's like happening, for example, in this country. So you're 
taking all of those things and like it says internalizing them so that it's almost like you're using that racism against yourself i have seen some people define it as like a smog in this country that like everybody is like breathing in racism all of the time so like we're all like a part of this smog i want to give credit i feel like that was Brittany pacman that i heard (laughs) talk about the smog but I feel like that's so true. Like we're all a part of it. And some of the things we aren't even thinking about. Actually, in the study, The Psychology of Racism, Robin Nicole Johnson further emphasizes that internalized racism involves both conscious and unconscious acceptance of racial hierarchy in which whites are constantly ranked above people of color. So that like it's happening when we're not even thinking about just things that are happening. And so like all of these definitions are encompassing a wide range of instances. This includes, but definitely is not limited to, a belief in negative racial stereotypes. Like, I'm Black, but I think all Black people are lazy. That's not me for real. I don't think that. I, uh, listen, <laughs> I would hope we don't have to fight. <laughs> you seen that Marge Simpson at me. I know some of you, like Jasmine, sign off. But... <laughs> Meek, meek, meek. (laughs) Yeah, for an example, it could be like that, or it could be an adaptation to white cultural standards. So like when I was younger, I permed my hair. So if you're perming your kinkier hair texture so that they more closely resemble a European beauty standard, it doesn't have to be, but that could encompass internalized racial oppression. Also thinking that supports the status quo. So like if I am part of a marginalized group and I'm just like, oh, racism doesn't exist just because other people say racism doesn't exist, even though we're affected by it, then that could be internalized racial oppression. Yeah, like kind of trying to trivialize the things that are actually going on. Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree. That would be a part of internalized racial oppression. If you think it's, it's not happening. Or you know what? I feel like it shows up sometimes when people have become tokenized. They feel like racism doesn't exist anymore. Like, oh, I was able to ascend to this certain level or get this certain thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know what y'all doing wrong. Y'all need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, which these are definitely not my views. But like, (laughs) they're like, oh, y'all need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I've done this and that. And I'm able to ascend to this level. So it it must not exist because I got here. But there's also a tokenization that happens with certain people. And a lot of times, and we hate to say it, we, we hate to say it, but a lot of times people, especially people of color that end up in power, they get in that place because they were able to assimilate to a certain level of whiteness, right, of white right. dominant culture. Yeah. So that's definitely one big way that it manifests. But it could also manifest as self-doubt, having an inferiority complex, self-hate, powerlessness, hopelessness, apathy, like just not caring anymore at all, addictive behaviors, abusive and violent relationships, or even conflict between people of color communities. So having this battle, it's always this conversation like, well, you know, Black people are always fighting for the rights of everybody. But when it comes to, I don't know, Asian Americans, they're not doing the same thing. Or Like, why are we battling between minority groups? That's also part of it. I've seen that a lot at the beginning of COVID when there was a lot of 
I'm trying to think of the term. I would say, like, there was a lot of overt racism on the Asian American population in this country mm-hmm. for no damn reason, right. by the way. Right. Like, it didn't even make sense. And our <laughs> president was a who? part. Uh, yeah. He, Wait, who? Our president. Who? <laughs> <laughs> that, man, that man that live on that street. <laughs> I, 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 can't even, know who? <laughs> I can't even say Pennsylvania Avenue because I think they renamed the street. Oh, but like he was a part of perpetuating stereotypes against Asian American, and you know him and a lot of his followers um, continue to perpetuate those stereotypes. And I feel like there's a lot of pitting against each other in groups of color but in like we're gonna get to this at the end but like we're not all going to be free until we work in these collective groups together Mm -hmm. just as people of color we have to work in simultaneously for our liberation or we're not gonna get there even along those lines so like there's a flip side to this which is internalized privilege so this is where people who benefit from their status accept false assumptions and stereotypes created by the dominant culture so like you were saying if it's like a person from a marginalized community who was like, well, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps or I did this, they feel almost like they're better than the other people in their community or racial upbringing, whatever they want to say. Basically, they think that there's an inherent inferiority of the impressed group as well as an inherent superiority or normalcy in one's own personalized privilege group so it could either be like white people like all black people are lazy or well we're just smarter so that's why we get ahead or we're just better at whatever so that's why black people are trash whatever they say but then it could also be minority people minority groups saying the same thing you see this a lot in latinx communities where there's like a black versus white dynamic in those groups too where it's like well you know you see the quote-unquote white latinx people like in movies on tv and stuff like that but it's almost like they feel like they're better than the other group, even though they're all from the same place. They're all the same. You know, I see this show show up a lot in our community as well. One way I see it show up is like the criminalization of people that are harmed by the police. I see that show up all the time. And I see this as a justification. People will quickly criminalize people in order for us not to care as much about them I feel like the classism shows up a lot. One example would be if something happens to a drug dealer, people will be like, well, they shouldn't have been selling drugs. When in actuality, everything that happens is a part of the system that we are currently operating in. And like drug dealers matter, strippers matter, like all of these people matter. And there's a devaluation based on people's life, based on their occupation, based on the their class, based on their socioeconomic status. And it's not okay. Right. And it's not really calling attention to, like you said, the system that caused these things to happen, that Mm -hmm. caused you're mad at the drug dealer, but you're not mad at the system that forced that person into that type of lifestyle, not being able to get a job, being in poverty, not being able to get resources in their community. So they feel like they have to go out on their own and do it. Yeah. All of that is just like a really fancy way to say that internalized racial oppression or IRO is when a larger privileged system forces marginalized people to engage in their own oppression. 
So we're going to talk about some of the stages of development of internalized racial oppression. So the first stage of development is, I would say, (laughs) just like waking up or like realizing that you are not white. (laughs) And that seems super simplified when you think about the term. But this can look like people of color trying to actually become white or trying to be as good as white people or people of color getting angry that they are affected by racism and cannot be white. And and generally this happens when you are a child as a person of color. There's usually like a reckoning moment for people or when you migrate to the United States and you come from a different type of system. Those are the times when you kind of realize, oh crap, this is a racist system. I'm actually not in the benefactor right now. So what can I do? Yeah, I can definitely relate to this. I don't know when exactly this happened. I just remember being like super carefree, probably until like kindergarten or a little bit after that or whatever, especially because my name is Crystal. I was a black crystal. There was the mixed crystal. There was the Puerto Rican crystal. There was the white crystal. And we were all went through school together and graduated together. And so it was like, you're the black crystal. And I was just like, what do you mean? And then it was just like, oh, well, you know, you're different because you know your skin is darker or your hair is like this or oh you got braids or oh you like I don't know and so I always felt like I was trying to catch up oh well I can't wear braids now oh well I have to straighten my hair or I have to wear weaves or things like that and that's not to say that anybody that does these things is trying to be white but for me when I was growing up it wasn't that I was trying to be white but I realized that people especially boys I mean (laughs) They were, they were more attracted to the people with straighter hair Mm -hmm. or with smaller noses or things like that. And I would get comments like, oh, your eyes are big or, oh, you got big lips. And so it always made me feel like something was wrong with me. I don't know what my actual racial awakening was. And Crystal knows this about me. Like, I grew up around Black folks only, exclusively, for the most part. So I don't know what my actual racial awakening was. I will say that I grew up with a next-door neighbor that was very fair-skinned Black person. And I just noticed, like, the value that people place on her. We're, we're the same age. I just noticed, like, how people treated her and how she maneuvered in life and how people treated me as a dark-skinned Black woman or girl at that point. And so I used to be like, well, why am I not light-skinned? I don't understand why people are treating me different. Now, in 2020, you can't tell me anything about being dark-skinned. I love being dark-skinned. I was actually saying this morning, (laughs) I like to be out and kind of get that light tan because my skin gets really bronzy brown. And like, I love everything about being darker skin. But like growing up, I could complain about something or like bring attention to something to my teacher. My complaints would be ignored. Whereas like lighter skinned girls in my classroom would then be acknowledged in their concerns. I can relate even though I'm not light skin. I don't think I'm light skin, but you know what I mean? Like my skin is <laughs> on definitely- the spectrum. <laughs> right. On the spectrum, you know, I'm a tad bit lighter, but I could still see where I would have some of that privilege as opposed to someone who was darker than me. But then at the same time, I was in this weird middle space where I was still not getting the attention of like lighter skinned people or like, you know, people who are supposedly racially ambiguous, things mm-hmm. like that. 
it's weird too because it still shows up now in work sometimes i feel like maybe it's because i be popping off on people i ain't gonna sit here and lie and you just don't know how to act right But I do still see it show up sometimes. I feel there's been times I have a close work friend that is actually lighter skinned. And I feel like she can say the same thing that I say. But if I say it, it comes across differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fear and the, the anti-blackness that surrounds being dark skinned, I just own it as a part of my power. But it is something actively that I know that is a part of my life every day. But I, I've just gotten used to it at this point. Which leads me to the second stage of development. See, y'all thought we was done talking about it. <laughs> the second stage is rage and depression. So generally, you're consumed by anger toward white people because of racism and its effect. I would say people that are in the stage of rage and oppression is not really rooted in systematically dismantling systems of oppression. Rage is like super reactionary. You're just kind of saying they were never in it to solve the problem. It's just like, oh, I was treated bad, so now I'm pissed off. And and I think the the thing that happens when you talk about dismantling, like true dismantling must happen alongside healing. If people are not trying to heal and they're just really upset and rageful, hotel. You know, like conspiracy theories, (laughs) then you understand that they're trying to weaponize that rage. They're not actually trying to move to a place that could actually get us into a liberatory state. It's like all the time with people that argue with people on Facebook. Why y'all still doing that? Right. (sighs) In 2020. Like, it's really these trolls out here that aren't trying to do nothing they're really not even making any kind of valid point and stuff and y'all still up here arguing with them Mm -hmm. you just wearing yourself out i need my rest for the resistance i can't be arguing with people i was telling crystal that there's a group on facebook if white people getting on your nerves under a post um, called the white nonsense roundup you can simply tag them and they will show up and take over that argument and discussion you can continue to do a face mask or you know eat some fruit and (laughs) the white nonsense roundup is a group that was created by white people for white people to address our inherently racist society They believe it's their responsibility to call out white friends, relative contacts, speakers, and authors who are contributing to structural racism and harming their, they, what they would categorize as friends of color. And I will put their information in the show notes, but yeah, y'all stop arguing with these people. Like literally just tag white nonsense roundup. But so let's go back to the hoteps. Did you know that hotep in like Egyptian actually means at peace? So why why are they stressed? Why are you so upset? (laughs) Girl, why are they stressed? (laughs) There are some, I'm not going to lie. Like I have been slightly captivated by some of the things that they start to say. Mm-hmm. But then it just goes way, I don't even know what direction it's going in, but it goes way off. The- well, it must go left because it ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. That, sometimes the basis of the argument, that's the thing. The basis of the argument is correct, yeah, but then it goes all the way off. Or they they 
interweave conspiracies that y'all remember the 5g mask lady they interweave (laughs) conspiracies that don't really make sense and so then at that point they lose the validity of whatever they were saying you like oh oh okay I also struggle a little bit with people that live in the rage depression area because a lot of times I will see where people tell me like this person was around me talking about this or they came up to me talking about this. And I also wonder what about you makes people feel comfortable saying racist shit around you? Yeah. Uh, what what give give people that energy to feel like oh I can just slide this in or I can just talk about immigrants right now to Jasmine because she's not in that group and I feel comfortable. Hell no, nah, don't like nobody can come around me talking about other marginalized groups and I'm not gonna check them. I always wonder like people who other people are comfortable saying slick stuff to. What kind of vibe are they giving off that invites that type of talking? Right. That's a good question. I don't know. It's been on my mind lately. I don't know. I even see that with some of my white friends. They'll be like, it's very few white friends that I have. (laughs) They'll be like, "Um, well, this person came up to me and they just said this about black people. Like they feel comfortable around me saying that. And I say, why the hell they feel comfortable talking to you about that? I don't know. For me. What do you do about it? Did they feel comfortable at the end of that conversation? Probably so. And that's probably why next time they're going to come to you saying something else. Not even to like fault those people necessarily, but like to, if you think about it, like sometimes people are scared to react. So that's why you should use white nonsense roundup or people like that, like have somebody who is willing to jump in and defend it. Cause sometimes people just mind in their business and they're caught off guard and they don't know what to say. I've had slick stuff said to me before. It wasn't until like after the person walked away where I was just like, Oh, I would have messed them up. Like, cause I was just so caught off guard and upset. I don't understand why people feel comfortable sharing racism and like just randomly with strangers. You feel that comfortable with the belief and you're hating other people. I think as a practitioner, I, I, I feel like this is where I slightly disagree. And this is important because, you know, we are not a monolith. And, and I think this is where people kind of get comfortable Living in that silence is just a privilege in itself. If you're going to spend your privilege, spend your privilege there. Like, that's a place that you can spend your privilege is disrupting other people when they feel comfortable saying that type of stuff. Challenge the other people in your life because they're not going to feel comfortable coming up to me or you saying something like that. They're going to feel more comfortable with people who they feel like live a more middle space. And Mm -hmm. so if you do live, like, occupy that space, then challenge people let that be a part of your practice (laughs) no that's a good point i mean hey the third um stage of development is exclusion and immersion if you're in this space you just cutting white people out of your life and immersing in your own personal culture i will say you started out and you're like oh shoot i'm not white what and then you move into like all right now i'm pissed because i'm not white and so she's like, you know what? I'm just going to cut white people off because I'm pissed because I'm not white. But that's <laughs> what we are now, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm assuming, like, once you get to this point, you're like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to be around other people. I think missteps happen in this in exclusion because we will exclude other people, but then we don't become a part of our own communities in a real way. 
and people are like, oh, well, I don't hang around white people, but that means you also need to hang around people of color. And when I say people of color, I'm talking about from different socioeconomic statuses as well, like not being classist in our own communities. I live most of my life in the exclusion immersion area. (laughs) I really like to build into my own community. And I, I think I see this show up all the time. People always ask me, so you're from Alabama. <laughs> you must experience a lot of racism. But in actuality, I think I was shielded from a lot of racism growing up because I grew up in a primarily black community. My elementary school was mixed for the most part, but middle school and high school, I went to black institutions. I went to HBCU and then I got in the real world. Like that's a whole other thing. People need to talk about the transition from the HBCU to work life. But I got into the work life and I was like, oh shit, this is how white people really move. I got to keep stuff in writing because this time, (laughs) this is how it goes. But yeah, I feel like, you know, I try to immerse myself in mostly black culture. I feel like it's what keeps me sustained. I still remember when you moved up, like up north, and you were like, people always talking about the South is racist, but I've never experienced racism like this until I moved up north. And a lot of people don't realize that it's the whole country. It's all 50 states are racist. All 50. Right. Like, (laughs) adding territories, all that. Yeah, all 50. I mean, and that's the thing. Anti-blackness is a global phenomena (laughs) i mean i don't have a better term there but yeah anti-blackness is global racism specifically in the united states encompasses what y'all said from sea to shining sea it's it's all (laughs) it's all that like it's from sea to shining sea over here baby it's all 50 states and yeah so like because people feel like they categorize a place like historically with more racism they're like oh this person must have like more overt racism when i moved up here i was like oh shit not only is it racist people also don't know how to really be in community with each other as well like people of color don't really know how to be in community so it took me a lot of learning and unlearning just to figure out how to maneuver here so like the next step is self-awareness and investigation right that just means what does it mean to you to be black or a person of color it's an awareness of ourselves our culture and our history so how would you fit into this considering that the majority of your life you've lived in this exclusion slash immersion So for me, I love everything about Black culture. I think right now, like in the Black community, we are having some critical conversations around like what it means to be Black. Like we're trying to make our connections to Africa. Mm -hmm. Now, let me let me just say one thing about Africa before we go for (laughs) it. As a person that spent like significant time on the content, people think I'm really into connecting to Africa. And I believe in the richness of the black culture that we have built inside America in resistance. I personally, I, the I E Y, the I Y E, E Y E. Oh, yeah, E Y, girl. Look, we can't record at night. <laughs> the E Y E, I don't feel like I need that connection that has been stripped away from me. So you won't catch me doing the ancestry DNA kit. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm just being honest. And that's not because I'm worried about what the government going to do with my DNA. It's more because I just don't want to pay for something that has been stripped away from me. Now, I will say that I believe Black culture is super expansive here. I love everything about being Black. Part of it is accepting that it's so much beauty in being Black. And that's the thing that I guess I get emotional about because I've always known that. I've always been proud to be Black. Never wanted to be nothing else. Loved everything about it just is such beauty in, in, in Black people. And like, that is so diverse within itself. We built so many things out of just pure resistance that we're able to like call our own culture, music, food, fashion. Essentially, Black culture drives the entire culture in America because if they're not trying to emulate or deteriorate, <laughs> then what else do they do? Because honestly, look, I don't want to go there. Whiteness is a lack of culture. <laughs> <laughs> Not just a lack of seasoning, but I would say, like, there is a white culture, there's a white dominant culture, but is that a culture that you want to be a part of? Like, if you had to choose, that's a great question. You know what, Crystal? If you had to choose and you, you got to have a choice, you could either be born white or you would be born black again, knowing the challenges of being a black person, would you come back and be a black person? That's a really difficult question, considering we still live in a system that gives privilege to white people. So mm -hmm. from what I know now, being more aware. So like before, I I struggled with loving black culture because I wasn't really sure what it was. Mm -hmm. I still fell into that trap of black culture is what you see in rap videos and, you know, in Tyler Perry movies and... <laughs> Like, when you drive through the hood, because that's where, you know, I grew up, again, in the suburbs. So, like, I didn't see a whole lot of Black people. And if they were in my neighborhood and stuff, we were always the act white. We were good enough to be white type mm -hmm. of Black people. But now, like, getting more aware, and I love being Black. But then it also comes with that struggle of having to relive trauma every day and watching our people be lynched like every other day mm -hmm. and murdered and not treated fair. Like, how are you still murdering people and it's on camera and then it's happening again and again and again? Like, why hasn't it stopped? So for that reason, it's difficult. But to be like, oh, like my culture, my people. Yeah, I love it. I love being Black and I would want to be Black again. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to be nothing else. I'm going to just tell you, hey, I'm 10 toes dying in my pimp C voice. I don't want <laughs> 10 toes dying. I don't want to be nothing else. And I think a lot of it has to do, so I'm not from the suburbs. <laughs> like our listeners are probably like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm not from the suburbs. I definitely am from the hood. And just the cultural wealth and richness of like growing up in the hood was amazing. There were like caretakers. I would say it's truly like a village. I remember <laughs> this was recently, like a couple of years ago, my mom was taking me 
to visit my dad. Like I was visiting home and she was taking me to visit my dad. And like this lady that used to live by us had passed away. And my mom was like, why are you crying? Like I'm in the car just boohooing. She's like, why are you crying? Like what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, I used to be with this lady every day, baking cookies and doing all this. My mom never knew this because she got off at five o'clock. So a lot happened between me getting out of school and her getting home at five o'clock. And just like this woman took me in and she was like basically like my surrogate grandparent every day. See, liability was a little different in the 90s. But I would be all at the grocery store with this lady and just on outings. Just like the village that was my community, I don't think I could have gotten that anywhere else. That's why I struggle about like having kids, raising kids and like where they would be, what type of schools they would go to, what type of community they would be in. Because although we did not have much, the community that we had was full of wealth knowledge and like there were so many things that I learned just from the people on the porches in my community and I don't think I could have gotten that anywhere else and I feel like I missed out on a lot of that stuff there was definitely some of that but I don't feel like it was the same to the same extent of like what you're saying and even when like my dad's from Augusta and like when we go visit family in the south or my mom's side of the family is like from Savannah and Sylvania Georgia we go visit them and it felt like that and mm-hmm. I'm just like, like everybody's so close and so then I still felt like an outsider and that's my family extended family and stuff just how close everybody was and yeah. even now I still feel alone sometimes but I mean in all honesty like I don't really like people so but that's a whole <laughs> different story <laughs> yeah I mean you know we live in a very individualistic society anyway especially when you're talking about moving into the suburbs fully being a part of white dominant culture like we don't know our neighbors our I mean, I know my neighbor now because they won't stop talking to me. Like this morning, <laughs> this morning I was trying to run and my neighbor was like, yeah, your tomatoes are coming through the thing. I'm like, lady, go ahead. <laughs> um, but- I know uh, my neighbor, the one neighbor, since we just moved, we talked to them and they have four sons. Yeah, four sons, two sets of twins. Oh, wow. And- in their like mid to upper 20s so they're a little bit younger than us the wife came over and she was talking to us and everything and she was telling me how she works at the grocery store every time I see like this notification like oh y'all they got Lysol spray and they got disinfectant wipes at the grocery store I'd be like wanting to go next to her and be like can you let me know when you go into work if they have some so I can get some but I don't even talk to her like I feel weird reaching out to my neighbors which is kind of scary because like if something happens like who am I gonna run to what's the close person like I'm gonna run there and they be like who are you yeah like growing up I knew every single neighbor around me the neighbor that was directly behind our house there was a adjoining street on the side and so it was a neighbor right behind us they would be on family vacations with us and everything I know her now she's I don't know if she's still in Maryland or she moved back to Alabama. But we keep up with each other now. That was just a part of life. This person being at Six Flags with us, my neighbor. And so it's kind of hard too, because like we make all of these sacrifices to like get to generational wealth and all of these other things for sustainability for our family. But also how can I still be in real community with black people I, t- I told somebody on a call last week I said I need to be around regular <laughs> black people now I'm not talking about the professional black scene that's where classes and competitive I'm talking about I need to be around with the candy lady and them because like that's what I grew up on a community that was very 
collective. And I told somebody I'm I'm probably always going to feel like I'm out of place here until I move back to the South. That's just something I've decided upon. I mean, when I was younger, our community that we lived in before was kind of like that. We were all really close. I remember, what is it, the Mazda? Is it MPV or something like that? That van my parents had? That big van. (laughs) (laughs) And this was before we had to wear seatbelts and stuff like that. And my mom would drive me and like all of our neighbors because we were all friends. Backspace. Not before we had to wear (laughs) seatbelts. Anybody had to go to that? It was a wild time. It was a wild right. time. So we would be packed in this minivan. And I just remember, like, some of us be sitting on the floor. Some of us be sitting in the trunk. Some of us be sitting on each other's laps. And we would just go places. And it was like we would, could just go outside. And we were at, like, five different people's houses. I mean, this is back when, you know, our parents would leave us home alone because they had to go to work. And, I mean, we weren't doing what we were supposed to do all the time. But it wasn't. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Now, I would be scared to leave my kids home. And I don't know what changed. My kids don't know any of the kids in this neighborhood. Even the neighborhood we lived in before, we just found out that one of our neighbors was actually in my son's class. And they were friends in school. And I didn't know they were in our neighborhood right around the corner. Yeah. So we have went through most of the stages for five, six, and seven. I feel like they go very cohesively together. These are the things that you can do to kind of combat internalized racial oppression. The first thing I would say is challenging action. It results from deepened awareness and investigation. You start to build and establish allyship with other groups and to break down barriers. Earlier in the episode, we talked a little bit about how they try to pit marginalized groups against each other. We need all of these groups and white co-conspirators or sometimes named allies to be like a part of the movement and challenging the the status quo, the paradigm that exists in America. Not to even plug our business. We'll do that at the end. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we need all of those groups just to be a part of getting to liberation, honestly. Yeah. The next one is collective actions. Not only do we need to challenge things that are going on, we need to collectively work together to build organizations and institutions that are, I would say, radically inclusive, but also anti-racist organizations. I think one of the things that you could really do is look at movement building of the past. You can look at the Black Panther movement. You can look at the civil rights movement. You can look at the Black Lives Matter movement that even is happening now and look at how people are working together to rebuild the institution that is this country in some of these situations. But movement building could happen at a very local level. I feel like there's been some, see, I'm not going to get into it, but I feel like there's been some movement building even within our regular job, which is um, interesting to see like people building a movement inside of a place of employment, but it can happen anywhere. I will also say if you are going to research some other movements like the Black Panther movement or civil rights or Black Lives Matter, don't just research what they taught you. Do your own research. Really look at the history and the background and the reasons. Don't fall into the trap. We all learned essentially white history or a cleansing of our history in school. So don't just fall back on what you were told. Actually do your own research. 
about the yeah, I agree. We definitely did not get a full depiction of history. Even last Juneteenth, you know, last Juneteenth was the first time people really were like, oh, it's Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I've always celebrated Juneteenth. So I was like, oh, okay, well, it's some more people at the party with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even like when I think about Juneteenth, a lot of people were like, this is my first time like actually hearing about this. And people were upset, like, how is this y'all first time? There are so many variants in education of like what we have been taught about ourselves. Even when I look at curriculum that I was taught in high school, the books that we read in high school, we read like Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison books exclusively. Everything that I learned in literature was surrounding Black people. So the richness of Black culture, we spent a lot of time talking about the historical resistance that Black people have been in. And also, I grew up in a very militant family, so my dad made me watch a lot of documentaries about Stokely Clark Michael and all that when I just wanted to watch the Jackson 5 American Dream. So (laughs) I was like, what does this have to do with anything? And now it's like a big basis of the work that we do that's so crazy <laughs> there are so many variances and what people are taught in school even textbooks these is some of the things that have been erased like the erasure of our history should be like criminal <laughs> in some places because it's wild i don't know if you remember this was this when we were teaching together or was this after you left this might have been the year you left but anyway the black history program i ran a drama program for context at our school and they told me i had to take out the word slavery and something else you can say they were workers i was like no baby oh i do remember that i don't know if i if it was after i left but i do remember you telling me about that and i was like so what are they learning like what are you actually they was like you can take out workers i'm like there is no way we can tell our full history we can't tell our full history without talking about the resistance of like where we've come from or Mm -hmm. just like the richness of what we've built out of nothing honestly out of oppression we have built a sustainable culture that the rest of the country tries to emulate now that's (laughs) to be celebrated that's not that's not something to be erased and I think that's what I think about when I hold on to black culture see I got all on a tangent I forgot number seven (laughs) (laughs) But number seven is community of resistance. I kind of just talked about that. Specifically, when we talk about communities of resistance, what's important is organizing social justice and transformation and working to heal those who have been harmed by racism. That looks like building community organizations, building up culture, empowerment, and accountability. Organizing can happen in any sector. You could literally pick one. You can you can work on with healthcare, education, prison reform, food security, community housing, policing. Organizing doesn't have to be big. It, it could also be a neighborhood initiative. It could be your block club. It could be your food bank. It could be anywhere that you see that there's an area that you can improve for your community that you can take upon that work. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really finding the right people who are willing to be involved in the same fight as you. Yeah. Crystal I ain't want to say it, but I know y'all <laughs> <laughs> I know y'all seen that Brianna Khan flyer. One thing that takes away from like true grassroots organizing that happens right now in our country is that people think that activism means that you have to be famous. First of all, the Brianna Khan situation, in my opinion, was disgusting. Okay. <laughs> 
context. They talking about Brianna Taylor, who was murdered by police officers mm -hmm. while she was sleeping in her bed. It has been like 160 something days now. I think so, yeah. And they still have not, like, there's still no justice. And so now people are using her name who were supposedly like activists or trying to bring awareness to this issue, but they're kind of just using her name to gain attention. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say, even on the flyer, girl, how you gonna have a flyer by Brianna and Brianna's head is in the bag? Now, how'd that work? I'm, <laughs> I'm like, yes, I mean, <laughs> let's not only is it not leaning into empathy and understanding for her family and like other people that knew her personally. It's very disgusting that you're using this woman's name as a platform to basically self-promote. That's not the type of organizing I'm thinking about when I think about communities of resistance. We're talking about finding healing and transformation for our communities, not creating a platform for ourselves. Right. So, I mean, overall, that was a lot. It was seven whole steps and... What we're saying is that the empowerment process begins when a person of color or somebody from a marginalized community, they begin to realize that they're not white, that they don't have those same privileges in this country, in many places around the world. You essentially move through these steps, fully manifest your potential, basically, when you move towards working with a community of resistance, when you find the people who are doing the same work as you, who are interested in fighting for change the same way that you are, who you can relate to, and who will also uplift and support you as you do for them. Yeah. You know, we always try to keep it light at the end. So I think some suggestions of things you can do, especially now when IRO manifests all the time, I would say... For us, people of color, it's really hard for us to talk about ourselves, especially in the context of work that we have done, like when navigating this space. So I would keep a portfolio of all of your work in a brag folder, essentially. I would update my LinkedIn after projects. I keep my update. I keep my LinkedIn updated. That thing is right. Okay. <laughs> but even like, if not a physical folder or your LinkedIn. In, like it could be just having like I have all these back soft copies on my computers of like resumes that I just build on to every year when I get a new job so I'm like oh I did this now let me add this let me move this off but then it still lets me see like where I came from and where I'm going man every time we do a proposal I have to tell Crystal you got to delete some of these projects <laughs> <laughs> Every time our experience feel is like a scroll. I'm like, you have to delete some of this stuff. We we need these people said two pages. Why do we have four? Because we gotta brag on ourselves. Yeah, that's true. And I think being in practice and like always bragging on ourselves is super important. I've been seeing a lot of posts about imposter syndrome, just like in black women. That's not something that I'm trying to like for myself or promote for myself. Crystal knows this about me. I'm the type of person, if anybody can do it, I can do it. I'm that person like, I don't know, they give me an opportunity to do something. If you give me a little crack, I'm going to step my foot in and try to go ahead and do what I came to do. I'm trying to be in practice of always not being a part of like what is labeled as imposter syndrome. I'm trying to always be ahead of the game. I, I don't think there's nothing that I have seen done that I can't do. 
I don't think there's a reason that I have to assimilate to do any of those things. I don't wear my hair straight. I am proudly sister locked. I don't have to do my hair no more. But I will throw on a, a unit now <laughs> for the bang. Oh, look, not the bang. The bang. We'll throw on a unit and quick if I feel like it. But I'm just saying, like, I don't do a lot of code switching. I don't do a lot of, like, softening of who I am. I had a discussion with somebody about this recently, and they were like, if you disrupt something, how do you cover yourself? I'm like, I don't really cover myself because I'm if I'm in an organization that is not comfortable with me disrupting racism or racist practices, then I probably don't need to be there. Yeah, you're in the wrong organization. Yeah, even if it's a client. If a client is not comfortable, I think we have that language explicitly in all of our proposals. Like, we will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. We're not here to make you comfortable. No. We we weren't comfortable. We were never comfortable. The people that work for you weren't comfortable. So that's what we're here to disrupt, right? And that's another thing is like these companies, organizations, business schools, they're going to do what they want to do anyway. So I sleep peacefully at night knowing that I don't have to soften or change anything about myself when I show up. But yeah, I'm on tangent. (laughs) I like you. I do often struggle with imposter syndrome. I mean, but like you, I also will put my foot in somewhere. I will try something new. I will go and stretch myself into an opportunity, which is a, another good suggestion for you listening. I will get into that space. Like, you know, we had that interview and I was like, we got halfway through the interview and I just kind of was just like, in my mind, oh shit, um, am I supposed to be here? What if they see that, like, what if they find out that I, I'm not really qualified or, and I was more than qualified, but I just feel like something in me is just like, I'm not good enough. And it just like peeks out every once in a while. And it's hard, but I still got to just go out and try. Like, I'm not going to learn anything if I don't fail. Yeah, definitely looking at your failures as learnings. I know a lot of times when I talk to people about board recruitment, they're like, we can't find people of color. I think there are two things that happen. Number one, internalized racial oppression tells us that we don't belong in a space. So combat that every day. The second thing that happens is the organization is not presenting itself as inclusive, so you're not drawing in people of color. Mm -hmm. Like, those two things happen simultaneously, and I think what we wanted to touch on on this episode is just, like, making sure that we're combating our own internal processes. It's not going to happen immediately. We live in this whole entire system, but we want to ensure that we're challenging, making sure we're living into collective action and building up our community of resistance and just seeking out like-minded people people who, who we share affinity with that can uplift and support you, whether they be co-conspirators or other people of color. So in this crazy world, racism continues to push us down, but the things that do empower us are resistance, awareness, and education. And on that note, let's get into what keeps us transcending. Jazz, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm coming off a nice weekend. I was able to, listen, every weekend me and Crystal do work. We don't talk about it on the podcast, but but we work literally all the time. It's it's after midnight at this point. So now it's Tuesday and we're still talking to y'all. <laughs> <laughs> but we work all the time and I was able to just like relax, unplug and enjoy time out. Now, I will say the hard part about being in a pandemic and trying to like live your life 
semi-carefree is that every time I feel like I'm doing something, like I had got a pedicure, I'm like, ooh, am I risking my life? Like, <laughs> I'm having that nagging thought all the time. But I feel like I'm really in a good place these past few weeks. I feel like I'm catching my stride. I'm getting back on my diet. I feel like so self-confident. I'm going out. People are like, oh my God, you look good. I, I think I've hit the noticeable point of weight loss. It just feels very affirming to see my work. So I'm like in, I think the last episode, I was kind of like, I've been suffering, I've been struggling, and, and now I'm feeling like I'm back on my stride. Yeah, so for me, I never thought that I would say this, um, but actually, like, I feel like right now in my full-time role, I feel like I'm transcending. Like, I feel like hey. I've right i'm like, so proud of you yes <laughs> i feel like finally all of this fighting and arguing <laughs> and breaking down in meetings and you know what i mean i think it's finally paying off and i'm finally starting to really feel like i said earlier i don't like people <laughs> the way you just slow down there. No, but like I have trouble, especially when in groups where everybody's like, oh my God, we love each other so much. Let's have fun and we're best friends. Like, I don't like that at all. And then on the flip side, I don't like people because of the evil and stuff like that. But like at my job, a lot of people are like, oh my God, this is so fun. Oh my God, we should do this together. Oh my God, we should. And literally in that voice. I really and... do. If my head could roll off right then, it would <laughs> hit the flow. <laughs> Right. I love a lot of the people that I work with. It just irritates me when it feels fake and when it feels forced. But I'm starting to finally feel like in my community at work that I'm finally being heard and valued for who I am. It's not just, oh, Crystal, that's a pessimist or, oh, Crystal, that always got something to say or, you know what I mean? It's like, you're always the one. This isn't always my shout out. You are the one who says the thing that needs to be said, whether or not people want to hear it. And now I'm really starting to see how valuable my voice has been in that space. And it's really starting to feel better. And so I'm hoping this is an upward trend. I'm hoping that I can take this as far as it can go and it'll just be positively from here on out, even though it probably won't. That's what I'm feeling good right now. Before we like exit out this section, <laughs> I, we didn't like, neither one of us named that like we are just killing it in our business. Like people come up to me all the time. They're like, <laughs> somebody wrote me an email today. They were like, hey, I seen the stuff that you sent, but oh my God, on LinkedIn, y'all are chilling it. Like, LinkedIn. On LinkedIn is Jimmy. This is me, Jimmy from LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, I feel like, I don't know, like we set out to do a thing and like what everything that we've been putting out into the universe, people have been receiving well. Some days like we're tired and we're exhausted. We had, we're essentially working two jobs, but I'm appreciative of the support. We're creating content that amplifies black indigenous and people of color voices and people are receiving like what we're putting out and not like we too not I was gonna say two badass black women doing this business thing, but I can't leave out just on it as well. So it's three of us <laughs> doing it. And she keep us on track. Woo! Thank you us in line. <laughs> yes. She's amazing. Shout out to our, our ops person. She's amazing. <laughs> 
you're right and again with imposter syndrome and things like that like i don't normally stop and say like we're killing it Mm -hmm. i'd be like oh yeah we did it and then move on but i really need to stop and really take in our successes and the things that we're doing and don't get us wrong we have (laughs) we have been turned down a couple of times Mm -hmm. already but it still feels good that we just jumped out here and we're doing it we're doing all of this and we're actually really happy that you are here for the ride right where can they find us at Tyler Perry Studios <laughs> <laughs> not at Tyler Perry's. you brought it up talking about the culture <laughs> so where can they find us online <laughs> no so if you are enjoying this and you do want to continue to follow us along the ride you can check us out at pivotalparadigmproject.org that's our regular hopefully soon to be money making business Yes, um, invoices are out. Yes. <laughs> on um, on IG is just Pivotal Paradigm Project. On Facebook is Pivotal Paradigm Project. Twitter is Pivotal Paradigm. And our email, if you need anything DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion related, consulting, anything like that, is team, T-E-A-M, at pivotalparadigmproject.org. For all things podcasts, our IG is sick.tired.transcendent. Facebook, sicktiredtranscendent, no dots. Twitter is sicktiredpod. And our email is sick.tired.transcendent at gmail.com. Yes. So if you have a story of how you want to talk about how internalized <laughs> racial oppression shows up in your life and you want to email us, go ahead and hit us up at sick.tired.transcendent at gmail.com. All right. So it's been nice. We need to go to bed, get some Z's. Let me put my slap cap back on. <laughs> I still got mine on. It's been great. Until next time. Bye, y'all. Peace.